and there we go. So, uh, so we finished up last time uh, just kind of exploring the um, issue of stereotyping, exploring the issue of where we get our ideas about uh, others, and especially um, where we get our ideas about others based on their group membership. And so when we talk about the way that people think in terms of their own group, in-group, and other groups, the out-groups, we tend to think of um, stereotypes or stereotyping. Um, and stereotypes rely on beliefs that we have um, about other people. But importantly, those beliefs in, as stereotypes aren't based so much on personal experience, but rather on the, how closely they fit the prototype or the category membership that they're assigned to in our minds. Okay, So I have a category membership which has woman assigned to it. right? And when I see someone who looks like a woman and fits my prototype of a woman, that activates my category, uh, that, that category concept of uh, woman. And that starts activating all kinds of stereotypes, right? And so kind of think about this in terms of memory. Uh, when, when you learned about memory in uh, intro psych, one of the things they talked about was the idea of spreading activation and nodes of memory. So when I prime you with a particular cue, right, that activates one node of memory, and then the activation spreads out over those long-term potentiated networks to activate other memories you have uh, of, uh, that are related to that cue. Or in some cases, unrelated, but they're related to some other memory that is, is related. So these are ways that we kind of activate in our minds ideas about other people that are fundamentally not about them as an individual, but rather about them as part of a group or part of a category. Now, uh, prejudice, we tend to think of as the um, judgmental feeling that we have about people. Aronson doesn't make this distinction, but I think it's an important distinction to make. Uh, I distinguish between the cognitive aspect of stereotypes and the affective aspect of uh, prejudice. So prejudice is more about um, how our stereotypes may activate emotional responses to individuals. Okay? And then uh, discrimination is the behavioral component of prejudice. Okay, so Aronson makes the, makes the notion that prejudice has a cognitive component, an affective component, and a behavioral component. Uh, I tend to split them out, uh, but uh, I won't disagree that discrimination will arise in the won't arise in the presence of prejudice. It certainly does. Um, so the, uh, you know, we watched the video about the uh, Ku Klux Klan thing in Medford. And um, that was, you know, that's discrimination. That individual was chosen in a discriminatory way to be the target of that 
uh, violence. Incidentally, I just saw that the, uh, they made an arrest in that case, a 37-year-old uh, man. The way that it was kind of, the way the story was kind of told, it almost sounded like it might have been teenagers or something like that, but apparently. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That lady was funny. She's like, I don't, I don't, wouldn't want to think that things like this would happen where I live. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Okay. So this is kind of the foundation of what we're going to talk about today in terms of attitudes. And when we think about attitudes, it's more up in the stereotyping part of what we're going to talk about here, although it flows down into this other stuff because all this stuff is based on stereotypes too. So uh, attitudes, when we think about attitudes, we think about both explicit attitudes, that is attitudes uh, that you're consciously aware of. So if I ask you, for example, um, uh, I'll pick uh, Mark. Do you like chocolate chip ice cream? Okay. Um, Carolyn, do you like the new Toyota Prius? Okay. And Rachel, um, what do you think about, uh, do, you, do you think that global warming is a problem? Yes. Yes. These are conscious attitudes. They're deliberative. I ask people and they say, yeah, it is. Okay. So that's easy enough. And uh, typically we, when we look at explicit attitudes and attitude change, we can change people's explicit attitudes relatively easily, um, basically through education, but also just through their own experience, the experiences they have. So um, my explicit attitudes toward African-American individuals, blacks, uh, is influenced by my education and my experience. You know, I've had experience with African-American individuals and those experiences have been overwhelmingly positive compared to the few negative ones that I've had. And so I have this explicit uh, attitude that, uh, you know, uh, blacks and whites are about equal, right, in terms of um, how I feel about them, my affective, prejudicial uh, experience. I don't, if somebody says, do you like whites more than blacks? Do you prefer whites more than blacks? I'll say no. Um, the other side of the coin is that we also know that people, remember from our study of cognitive dissonance, people don't always behave in accordance with their explicit attitudes. So what's going on there? Uh, that led to the notion that there might be attitudes which people don't have conscious access to and that those attitudes may guide those individuals' behaviors. So um, the idea here is that uh, these attitudes might be implicit, right? And so those are are sort of uh, outside your conscious awareness. Um, 
Okay, so the thing with implicit attitudes that makes them somewhat different from explicit is that first of all, you can't access them very well. You cannot have very good conscious access to them. And so they tend to be resistant to change. Education and experience doesn't generally tend to change these implicit uh, attitudes. And typically, um, they, are, they are changed. If they are changed, they're really only by going through and carefully learning new habits, new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing the world or experiencing the world. But we do know that context is useful for priming and then eliciting or getting those attitudes to become active. And people's behavior will change as a function of that priming. Okay. So individuals who are primed with one particular uh, activating stimulus, a stimulus that activates a particular stereotype, uh, will behave in a different way than individuals who are not primed with that particular stereotype activating stimulus. So this gives a and and you know both individuals will say I have a neutral attitude toward that stimulus. But now we've got differences. So what's going on? Where are these differences coming from? And the notion is that there's some kind of underlying attitudinal, attitudinal structure that may be responsible for those behaviors. Um, so um, the idea with uh, how this ties into stereotyping and prejudice is that when we prime those stereotypes, when we activate those stereotypes in your mind, it may activate these implicit uh, attitudes and um, prejudice may pop out of that and then ultimately discrimination. Okay? Does this all make sense? Again, you know, this is a model for trying to understand this stuff. It doesn't mean that this is uh, definitely the way that it works, but these are the best models that we have at this point. Questions? So uh, I hope one of your questions is, well, Okay, that's all well and good, but how, as psychologists, are we going to be able to measure these attitudes? So I'll pass out to you uh, an example of just a paper and pencil questionnaire, um, which is designed to measure uh, explicit, uh, what's called symbolic racism. Um, when we talk about racism, we talk about um, Racism that is direct, so people have directly negative feelings, attitudes, thoughts about uh, blacks, uh, assuming that they're whites. Um, and uh, then there's this thing called symbolic racism, which is a more subtle form of racism uh, that's not quite as strong. It's not like uh, you know, if I ask you what's your attitude toward blacks, you say, well, I don't like them. Uh, versus, 
you know, um, what do you think is, you know, the cause of uh, the problems that exist in the African-American community? And you say, well, um, you know, I'm sure they're all well-intentioned people, but I think they should just get more jobs, right? They just don't have the initiative that whites do. Um, and that's the implication that, that, you know, you don't say it directly, but it's kind of an implication. So, um, so a paper and pencil test can go about doing that. So here's some questions on this symbolic racism scale. And there's a website on here where I got it from. You can look it up if you want. It's really a matter of some, pe uh, it's really a matter of some people not, not trying hard enough. If blacks would only try harder, they could be just as well off as whites, right? This is a very, um, it's, it's not a directly negative attack, but, uh, but it, it tries to get at the idea that someone might see the predicament of blacks as being their own situation rather than part of a system, right? Because we're all part of a system of, um, of oppression and, uh, uh, so Irish, Italian, Jewish, and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same, right? So, um, so this will give you an idea of what one of those uh, scales will look like, and it has some notes on scoring it at the end. So don't judge yourself if you take this stuff and you score high on symbolic racism. Um, first of all, uh, there's lots of individual differences, but there's also lots of contextual effect. It's going to be affected by uh, what you've been exposed to recently. So um, uh, I wouldn't take it too seriously. And on the other hand, if you score real low on symbolic racism, don't pat yourself on the back and go, oh, I'm a good guy. Right? Well, that may not be the case. So, Okay. Oh, did I already advance the slide? I didn't mean to. Oh yeah, okay. So, um, so that's one of these questionnaires. And um, this isn't exactly a Likert scale or Likert scale. If you're in Canada, you'll pronounce it Likert. If you're in the United States, you'll pronounce it Likert. A Likert scale usually runs from one to seven. And you'll say, um, agree disagree, right? And so you'll ask somebody a question and say, circle the um, amount of agreement that you have. So you circle, I don't know, three, right? And so that gives us a quantitative estimate of your attitude toward something, right? And then we can add all those up and, you know, come up with averages, means, um, standard deviations, and we can look at differences between groups and how they score. Um, okay. The other way that we're going to measure attitudes is through implicit attitude measurement, okay? And um, so I can give you a paper and pencil implicit attitude measurement, and one of those is the word completion task that you just completed. Um, a way to kind of get at some kind of underlying associations that you're forming based on the stimuli that I'm exposing you to. So I'm hoping that the people in the window group, sit near the window, just again, I didn't do a random assignment, I didn't do a random selection. Um, so the people over here, I'm hoping, will have formed 
um, more associations with um, aggressive words than the group than this group, but we'll see what happens. Um, reaction time is another way, and I put IAT in parentheses. We'll talk about the IAT, and then uh, brain activity is another way of getting at um, underlying attitude. Um, uh, attitudes rather than directly asking somebody. What's the problem with directly asking somebody, what's your attitude toward Jews? Or what's your attitude toward blacks? Or what's your attitude toward Native Americans? Yeah? Okay, so, um, so if I give you this questionnaire and I say, um, you know, um, rate the degree to which you think that, you know, all blacks are lazy, rate the degree to which you think all blacks are athletic, rate the degree to think that all blacks are hostile or aggressive. These are, you know, stereotypes, bless you. So um, if I do that, right, uh, why, am, why might I not get real attitude data? Or do you think I would? Because it's anonymous. Okay, so one advantage of the questionnaire versus a direct interview would be that people may have more anonymity and they may be more likely to give their real feelings rather than confronting somebody. Uh, but there's also self-presentation concerns, right? Did, it talk, did uh, Aronson talk about that in this chapter? Self-presentation? Okay. Yeah, so the idea... No, the idea that we tend to want to present ourselves to others, impression management, we tend to want to present ourselves to others as very socially desirable, okay? So we're careful about what we say, even on these anonymous questionnaires, in fact. So um, we can kind of get around that by measuring your social desire, what's called SDI, social desirability index. So I can give you another questionnaire that will assess to what degree you want to be seen as socially desirable. And that'll give me a way of kind of moderating your responses on these explicit questionnaires. Um, so the nice thing about the implicit measures is we don't have to worry so much about self-presentation concerns. Um, we're, we will get much more um, low-level responses. And a lot of times what these implicit measures ask you to do is respond quickly, right? We want to get your automatic, uh, your automatic response. Um, so because here's what happens. We tend to think that there's a spontaneous attitude that comes up in situations. And then what happens is we take that spontaneous attitude and think about it and then change um, how we're going to respond by that deliberative process. So we think of the spontaneous process and then a later deliberative process. But what we'll find in research when we look at behavior is oftentimes the spontaneous attitude more accurately predicts behavior than the deliberative attitude. So. Um, so as I said, if you're going to scan somebody's brain, you might do a f an fMRI. And um, when we do that, and we put people on an fMRI scanner, 
And we have them look at images of outgroup members who are undesirable. So people like, um, you know, people who are homeless, right? This generally elicits um, uh, a response that's kind of like, you know, it's kind of an undesirable person. Um, we will get higher levels of activation in the amygdala than we do in the um, cortical, uh, in the frontal cortex. And remember, the amygdala is in the limbic system, and that's associated with emotional arousal, um, which again is something we might associate with prejudice. So, um, whereas the frontal cortex is involved in judgment, decision making, more deliberative kinds of processes and thinking. Okay, so this is good indication that when we see something, we have this automatic um, sort of. Uh, uh, a limbic system response to it that may guide our behaviors. When we look at reaction time, for example, if I give you a task to shoot someone on a screen, you know, give you a little, you know, one of those uh, game controllers that's a gun, you know, and say there's going to be an image on here, and uh, if the person is holding a gun, shoot them, and if they're holding uh, a harmless object, don't shoot them. And so then we'll flash these images up on the screen. And uh, what we get is uh, that the black men in these experiments tend to be shot at more frequently than do the white men, regardless of whether they're holding a dangerous object. And in fact, ambiguous objects are more likely to be interpreted as dangerous when they're held uh, oh, well, that's my next thing on priming. If we prime uh, subjects with black in images of uh, individuals who are black versus in in images of individuals who are white, um, the people uh, who we prime with the black faces are more likely to identify a gun um, even if it's an ambiguous or harmless object. Um, and they're much more often to make mistakes of these harmless objects as guns. So there's an act, we think that what's going on here is there's an activation, there's an association between blacks and danger that gets activated. And all of a sudden, when you see an individual who's black holding something, that thing becomes a gun, right? It's this automatic kinds of associations, yeah. Okay, so uh, how would you control for that? So you're saying that um, that individuals with black faces stand out more than yeah, individuals with white faces? Reaction time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So how would you control for that? Good, think about figure and ground, right? Perception, what you learned in 201. So if you make the background lighter for the white individuals and darker for the black individuals, it's not gonna stand out as much, right? So it's so figure and ground. No, but I'm saying that you could test for that effect. And I assume that 
being good scientists, they probably did that in these studies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that may not, you know, it may not have been tested. So that sort, of, you're thinking about sort of a contrast effect. Yeah, yeah right. So you'd want to try to eliminate that contrast effect. And oftentimes, you know, we're aware of perceptual processes. So I expect they probably did, but I can't be sure because I didn't read the study carefully. Unless the background is very dark. And then the white man will stand out. Yeah. 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 So there you go. You're a good critical thinker. All right. Um, so this leads us to talking about uh, what's called the implicit association test. Uh, did you, were you in 202 when we ran that? You did it online? Okay, good. That's what we're going to do today, by the way. Um, so the implicit association test was developed about 10 years ago by uh, Tony Greenwald and uh, some of his colleagues. And here's what happens. We get people to um, associate, we, we get them to classify stimuli into either stereotype consistent or stereotype inconsistent groups. So one of the stereotypes that exists in our culture is that uh, men or boys are better at math than women or girls. And girls or women are better at English than uh, men and boys. So um, we try to see what happens when they, when they make these stereotype consistent assignments versus stereotype inconsistent. And we'll use a keyboard and a computer. And so what'll happen is we can put the, we can put the uh, stimuli up on the screen and then measure the amount of time it takes them to make that assignment correctly. Okay? Yeah? Yeah. 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 But do you know? Yeah. But do you notice what they do? It's um. It's made up of I think seven trials, and this will become clear when I go through the example here. So trial one is going to ask you to um, assign a stimulus to either male or female, for example. Okay, and then trial two is going to ask you to assign a stimulus, a word typically, and this is usually a picture of a man or a woman, and this will ask you to assign it to math or liberal arts. Okay, uh, then trial three is going to give you practice at male, or math, and then female, or arts. Okay. Oops, this is running out. Trash that. Then trial four is going to be the um, trial that it's actually going to be measuring your reaction time. And so it'll ask you to go uh, male uh, or math and female or arts. And then trial five 
is now uh, give you practice at switching. So now they're going to switch it over here. Um, okay. Trial six. Uh, then asks it must be six. It must be six trials, and then trial six is the actual measurement. Wait a minute. There's another one in here. What am I not doing? Um, I think what happens here, there's another one in here that goes, uh, switches these things and says arts and then math. Okay, so it switches these two. So it, it does this kind of what's called counterbalancing. So it tries to counterbalance the effects. In addition, one subject might get, uh, might have this measurement in the fourth position and this one in the sixth, and then another participant, the next participant would have them switched. So that's a way to measure those effects. And yes, we do get actually a bit of a, a difference in these sometimes, but in order to um, uh, control for that, we do counterbalancing. Yeah, that's a good critical analysis of it. And there are some good statistical methods that can be used to analyze the data differently that uh, control for those problems. So basically, we're looking at the difference in the response times as a proxy for or a measurement of a strength of association. So if you have a short response time to this association, we can say you have a strong association, you have a preference for a strong association between male and math. If you have a long response time, that's going to say you have to think about it more. And you have to kind of override those automatic associations. And so it's going to be more difficult. Your association is going to be weaker. Okay. So let me give you uh, uh, any questions first. Let me give you a sort of demo of what this uh, will look like when we go up and do it in a few minutes here. So uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have this. This is the stereotype consistent um, uh, pairing. And so when uh, you see something on this that fits these categories, then we want you to press the uh, in this case, it's the E key, I think. Yeah. And when you see something that matches these categories, you press the I key. So then we present the uh, stimuli. And you're supposed to pick E or I. E. e. Yeah. And then I. Good. And then E. Yeah. And then I. Good. Okay. And then as I said, it, then they're going to do a couple they're going to do these uh practice trials, then they're going to do the main trial and then they're going to do a couple more practice. And then they're going to present um 
they're now going to switch the position of arts and math. And now they want you to, now you have to take an inconsistent, stereotype inconsistent um, categories uh, selection and make your choice E. Because it was male. Arts or male. Right? So which one does this go in? Which key would you press? E? Okay. I, right? I, yeah, good. So, um, so in this way, it measures how much latency there is, and it gives us data on people's uh, implicit cognitions. Now, this is only really useful uh, if we look at things that maybe might lead to behaviors. So, um, oh, incidentally, let me show you some of the data on. Uh, Explicit versus implicit attitudes. This is interesting data from uh, some web-based implicit attitude tests like we're going to run upstairs today. Um, and so it looks at uh, black respondents versus white respondents. And when we look at the explicit attitudes of blacks, um, they tend to have a stronger preference for blacks. When we look at the uh, explicit attitudes of whites, they tend to have a stronger preference for whites, not quite as strong as the preference for blacks. Then uh, when we look at the uh, implicit attitudes of black respondents, they tend to have a slight preference for whites. So all this uh, black preference disappears, and then they have a, um, a blacks or whites tend to have a stronger uh, preference for whites. And this, interestingly, is data from a huge number of, of uh, respondents, 100 and, almost 121,000 individuals. Yeah. Okay, what is this telling you then? What, what, what people prefer, the people who completed it, yeah. So when we ask somebody directly, explicitly, do you have a preference for whites or a preference for blacks? Overwhelmingly, blacks are going to say, I have a preference for blacks, explicitly. And whites are going to say, uh, I have a preference for whites. When we do the implicit measurement, all of a sudden that black preference disappears and there's a slight preference for whites. Um, you know, and this, was, this is backed up by data from behavioral studies which has shown that, uh, fortunately, over time, it's reduced. And this would have been probably a lot larger years ago. Um, because when we give, uh, uh, you know, when we used to give uh, black babies the opportunity to play with dolls, they would overwhelmingly choose the white dolls. And over time, over the last uh, about 40 or 50 years, that preference has actually disappeared. And now they're starting to prefer black dolls over white dolls. Uh, well, in part, that's all there were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yep. Yep. 
And you might say explicitly, I don't have any preference. I'll take one or the other. But when you give them the option, all of a sudden it activates those uh, automatic uh, responses. Here's some more data on uh, implicit attitudes and behavior. Uh, more negative explicit attitudes toward blacks among whites um, predicted the likelihood that someone was going to use more negative nonverbal behavior uh, when they interacted with a black experimenter instead of a white experimenter. Okay? So these, um, when we measure these implicit attitudes, we can actually look at analogs of what happens behaviorally um, when we see these patterns, right? Um, when we look at gay men's attitudes toward homosexuality, uh, their uh, positive implicit attitudes toward homosexuality predicted more positive experiences in the gay community. Okay, so we ask people, what have been your experiences in the gay community? Then we test their, ex their implicit attitudes, and we find out that there's a correlation. There's no cause, there's no causal relationship here, but just associations and correlations. And uh, even in health-related behaviors, when we measure people's implicit attitudes toward fruit versus snacks, right, um, they tend, uh, if they have a positive uh, attitude toward uh, snacks, they tend to choose um, less healthy snacks. If they have a positive implicit attitude toward fruit, they tend to choose uh, fruit when we give them the option to choose something after the experiment. Right? So these are pretty good indicators that um, the implicit attitudes are somewhat predictive of behavior. But, and there's a big but here, um, when you take this implicit attitude test upstairs today, um, I can't predict from your own individual response how that might affect your behavior because this is aggregate data from a lot of people. Okay, experimental data is going to be very different from uh, individual data. Probably North America, yeah. Yeah. Uh, questions? So here's what we'll do. Uh, it's about uh, 10 after. Um, we will uh, move up to room 307. So um, you'll see a sign leading up these stairs for the labs upstairs. And I've reserved lab uh, room 307. And choose any, um, any computer there. We'll just be getting on the web and doing some web access. And then uh, we won't have time to discuss what we do today, but we'll probably uh, discuss, uh, discuss it next class. Um, so uh, please be up there no later than 20 after. So that gives you 10 minutes if you want to take a potty break or something. 307.